Alien aus der Tiefe. Dieser Film ist wie ein Sprung ins eiskalte Wasser. Diese Männer versuchen, ihr Dschungelparadies zu verteidigen. Darf ich Ihnen mal eine Frage stellen? Weshalb sind die Jungs so sauer auf Sie? Doch sie sitzen auf einer tickenden Zeitbombe. Jetzt weiß ich, was mit dem Atommüll hier geschieht. Die Lava lässt sich nicht mehr aufhalten. Der Gasdruck hat den kritischen Wert überschritten. Steht uns etwa eine Eruption bevor? aus der Tiefe. Es ist The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett. And I'm John Hudson. And we're back again to talk about the films of Antonio Margariti. Uh, this has been an ongoing series of podcasts we've been doing for, well, how many years now? Three? Three at least. At and least three? Yeah. It's really one of many things that makes me realize just how fast time is going by. It seems to accelerate as we age, does it not? Don't it, though? It's kind of terrifying. Tonight... Back to the Margariti grind. I wouldn't call it a grind, though. I guess I'm just uh, trying to be somewhat poetical. I'm trying to use my radio. I'll use my radio voice. Well, hey, I'll use mine as well. Okay, hey. that's the wrong radio voice. Oh, okay. That's uh, that's the uh, is that that's the AM voice. I'm trying I was going to be my FM wacky voice. morning DJ. <laughs> like, like, you can be you do you can be yeah. Pete, and I'll be the animal. And <laughs> And we'll talk about things that are right up to the line that might get us thrown off. The FCC's listening to us, boys. In 10 minutes, stick around. We're going to make our daily fart call. (laughs) You got the soundboard with various various and sundry farts. Yeah, yeah, just of course. That would be, ah, yes, the level of the morning DJ. Roughly the lowest bar to step over in the world. Pretty low. Pretty low. Anyway, folks, tonight, uh, the Antonio Margarita film that we are covering is uh, one from, well, it's one of his last films, actually, uh, very close to being his last film, from 1989, Alien from the Deep. Um, That being an 80s film and having the word alien in the title, you might know where we're kind of going. But before we get to that... It's not subtle as far as where it's going. No, it's not. Before we get to that... um, Mr. Hudson, uh, anything uh, new or interesting you've been up to in the past little while? Because it's been uh, been about two months since we sat down to record, yeah, I think. it's been a little while. Um, not too much fascinating stuff. Um, just the regular the regular old stuff. Just regular smegular? Regular smegular, living the dream. Um, I've <laughs> seen a few good movies. One that I really like that you may not have seen yet is Dragged Across Concrete. No, I have not seen that yet. It's good. I'm a big fan of that filmmaker. Ever since Bone Tomahawk, mm-hmm. I've been a big fan of that, that filmmaker. So, but the thing is, I still haven't seen uh, the film he made just prior to that. Uh, the um, 
Oh, Brawl in the Cell Brawl Block 99. 99. I, still fact, haven't seen I think that. we talked about that on a previous I show got, where I had just seen that. I'm I'm lucky I've managed to see Mandy for God's sake. I I just I'm behind. I'm always perpetually behind of the the the, the newer stuff. Oh, back, I I know. definitely am too. Zoller has become one of those guys though that as soon as it comes out, he moves to the top of the stack. He kind of should for me as well. You're you're right. That should be the kind of that sh- that should be kind of what I do as well. Because he's really good, and I'm I'm always behind. But him, I, I make time. You know, it's kind of like when a new Joe Lansdale book comes out. Yeah. Or a new Robert McCammon book. Yeah. I, it's like okay, I know this is coming out, so I clear the to read pile, put space <laughs> on top, and that's what goes there. But it's good. The, the, anyway, the movie's good. Um, great cast. It's the typical slow burn, and I know I've heard a few people complain that it's too long because it's like two hours and 15 minutes. I've got a cold that I'll be fighting, so you may hear the occasional, I'm not giving birth to an alien. <laughs> You're sure? I'm sure. Uh, well, I mean, the thing, I mean, it's always that statement made long ago, which is a good film's never, uh, a good film's never long enough, and a bad film's never, I mean, and a bad film's always too long. Well, yeah, and this one, it's a slow burn, but there's always a burn going on. I liked yeah. it. Well, it's one that's on. It's on my list. Uh, I have been uh, it being the summer. I'm. Uh, I don't know why in the summer this happens to me. It happens kind of when the winter starts as well. But I'm like heavy duty reading, reading, reading a lot of fiction. Usually that's that's true of me. I've always I'm always reading some novel or another, or some short story collection. But I've been really burning through a lot of stuff here lately. I'm rereading the uh, the Elric novels by oh. Michael Moorcock. I'm in the. Uh, I'm in the second one now, and uh, I couldn't remember. It's been it, I had not read the books since I was a teenager, and I was I got the urge, and so I was able. To p- I picked up cheap paperback copies because my original copies are somehow or another long gone. I don't I, I don't know. I I tried. I've retained. I've retained a lot of things that I had when I was a teenager, but apparently not my Elric novels. Did those get lost? I know. A couple of years ago, your place flooded. Could well, those yeah. have been in that match? I, I went from the having the paperbacks to having these those wonderful hardback editions of all the Eternal Champions books, and those got lost in the flood. So uh. that's yeah. So I was able to pick up cheap paperback copies of just the uh, the original six Elric novels, and so I'm working my way through those. And it was funny after I read the first one, I was like, wow, I really I just picked up the first one. I was like, wow, you know, I've decided I want to I want to go ahead and reread all of these. And so I went and picked them up. I read a couple of other things before I got to the second book, and there was a and I, I was thinking in the back of my head, I can't remember how quickly Moorcock introduces the concept of the Eternal Champion and all the other, you know, forms that the character took, and it's like, oh, right in the second novel, <laughs> that second Elric novel, you have Hawk Moon show up and Corum show up and Ericos, and you're just like, oh yeah, okay, well it was pretty quick, right? Yeah, it's funny how that goes. I just started rewatching uh, Justified, mm-hmm. and so many of those great characters yeah i'd forgotten that like episode three you know they start some of these guys start showing up and just like i didn't remember even being for like a couple of seasons worth you know but <laughs> they just got so ingrained into the tapestry of that show and, and it was such a yeah it was so, it was so well written and those characters it, the, the the writing gave those uh those character those character actors a lot to chew on that was a really good time before i read this second elric novel i kind of jogged to the to the left <laughs> in a weird way. And uh, I had meant to, years and years ago, more than 20 years ago, read those novels that came out when the Mars Attacks film came out in 96. And when uh, Mark Maddox and I covered Mars Attacks a couple years ago, uh, I remembered them. And so I was able to pick them up, uh, you know, pick pick up used paperback copies of those. There were only two Mars Attacks novels, so I've had those kind of in the uh, to-read stack that's roughly two miles high, and so I finally mm-hmm. pulled the first one off the stack and read that. It was a it was a quick read, 
uh, written by a guy named Nathan Archer. It's called um, uh, De- uh, Martian Death Trap. And uh, it's essentially the story of a bunch of people, you know, as the as the Martians attack, they get uh, trapped in this uh, kind of out-of-the-way old mansion in rural California, cut off from a bunch of people. It's kind of a tourist trap, and the Martians land because, well, they're the Martians, and they think that there's something of, of value there, and they can't figure out what this house is in the first place. And it's it's an okay book, but not a great one. Uh, there's a there's a lot of characters because you got to have a lot of victims for the Martians to kill off, obviously. But that's one of the problems is the the characters. It's it's not easy to to get a handle on the, who the characters are beyond just a basic name. There's only two or three characters that stand out because they actually have some detail to them, so that you can actually latch on to a you know a, an image of them in your head and keep them separate from all of the other people swirling about. Uh, it's okay, but I can't. You know, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend going out of your way for it. I'll probably I'll end up reading the second one, <laughs> probably before the end of the summer, just to go ahead and get it out of the way. Let's see, that sounds about like what you would expect that book to be. It's like okay, it was fun, you know, disposable but fun. And yeah, but they're I read these sometimes just because I think sometimes I get a, sh- a shock. Sometimes they're mm-hmm. better they're better than they need to be, and this one's about exactly what it needed to be which means it was kind of a bit but kind of a bit of a disappointment honestly and I'm you know it's not what I was hoping for but I got to say going back to the to the Moorcock Elric stuff really is a joy because I've forgotten how just wonderfully mesmerizing his prose is and how easy it is to just get sucked in and just keep reading and keep reading and keep reading it's just there's there's such fun but uh, that's what I've been doing lately so. well that sounds all right to me I guess the only other thing I've been doing is my um Nightly ritual is always read a bunch of stuff until I get really sleepy, mm-hmm. then read something else. And my something else has been the run of the New Teen Titans. I've got those oh. omnibus editions. The uh, Marvel Wolfman George Perez? Yeah. yeah, and I haven't read those since I was in high school. I read mm-hmm. them as they came out, and I haven't gone back and reread them. And those things hold up so well. Really good stuff. I have the first five trades of that as they were coming out. I picked them up, but I haven't gone. I haven't sat down and started going through them and reading. But of course, obviously, I have the plan to do so because, mm-hmm. yeah, man, a lot of great memories. I remember the first four. I read the first forty or forty-five issues of that when it was coming out when I was in, when I was a kid, and man, what a, it was just such a great book. Of course, I just I worshipped George Perez's artwork. The vivid, the vivid detail, and the the ability to 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 draw action in a, in such a kinetic way. He's never going to be my favorite comic book artist, but you know he's like top ten for me because of when I was he he was doing that book and a bunch of other stuff. Some of the stuff he was doing, um, he did a couple of Justice League issues and he did a lot of Avengers stuff when mm-hmm. I was a kid too. And it's just like, oh, uh, he was so good at doing those team those team books, and. Um, and just, all the team members would look different. Yeah. It wasn't just like the same guy in a different uniform with a different hair color. Yeah. I really, I, he, he only did a few issues of the Justice <clears throat> Justice League when I was a kid, and I always wished he had done a long, big run of it. Mm-hmm. But I think he only did a few issues of it. Um, because primarily, I think George Perez was a Marvel guy for whatever, you know, for whatever reason. But, uh, yeah, just... Just a joy, just a joy to read. I, I I have every reason in the world to go back and reread those oh. Teen Titan issues and read the ones that I didn't get to. Actually, I'm having a lot of fun. I'm just got up to the Judas Contract. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. So introduces, uh, I believe that introduces Deathstroke, doesn't it? He was in there a couple issues before. Yeah, like I think it was actually an issue two. Okay, but this is what makes him a major character. Is cool. that that story arc? Well, all right. I'll tell you what, people. Um, 
we will take a quick break here. I'll play a few ads for a few interesting things, and then uh, Mr. Hudson and I will come back, and we will discuss Antonio Margariti's film Alien from the Deep. Or maybe we can just talk about the Teen Titans some more. Would that be more fun? Uh, No, actually, I don't think it would be much more fun, because there's a lot to dig into with Alien from the Deep. You're right, you snake squeezer. (laughs) God, some of the dialogue in this. Vampires, werewolves, zombies. Yes, these things are real. But fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. Welcome to Good Beer, Bad Movie Night, where each month we drink finely crafted brews while watching terrible films in order to see just how drunk you have to get to enjoy them. So tune in and join Troy. Killboy Kreitz. <laughs> oh, that was pretty good. Thank you. <laughs> Dave. I have the weirdest boner. And Pete. IPAs are ales, meaning they are bottom fermented. Excuse me, they are top fermented. I f- that up. <laughs> Try that again. <laughs> As we drag Kathleen, Hear me. kicking and screaming through an alcohol-fueled podcast dedicated to movies of questionable quality and the frosty adult beverages that help make them tolerable. Good beer, bad movie night. Clearly, it's the beer's fault. from the deep 1989 directed by antonio margariti one of his last feature films the 80s were a very odd time for italian exploitation cinema financing was drying up by the late 80s it had dried up to the point where almost all the productions of genre cinema horror science fiction and whatever other weirdness exploitation cinema you might think of generally was being geared for the lowest budget possible because in a lot of countries, these things were well they were well aware these were going to either go straight to video or going to be sold to a television station or a cable station or something like that. So there was less and less money available, and people who were willing to finance these things were willing to spend less and less on individual projects. So you had to be somebody who was able to get a lot of bang for the buck, and luckily, that was something Antonio Margariti had been highly capable of all the way back to the 1960s. Remember, Margariti was famous for being able to stretch a dollar till it screamed, or stretch a lira, or stretch a... Uh, <laughs> Whichever country the money came from. Whatever denomination the country you're talking about was, and he was using, he could stretch it till it screamed, mainly because he 
was very, very good at using miniatures to fake a lot of the action sequences and the large production pieces that other people would have to find some way to do in camera as a live thing with actual human beings. So, this put Mr. Margariti in good stead to continue making films for lower and lower budgets all the way through the 1980s until, honestly, things did dry up for him and his health kind of was a part of that problem as well when you started entering the late 80s and early 90s. He was getting up there in years. Remember, he did pass away in 2002. This is not the last film he worked on, but it is one of the last films that actually got released. He uh, Right before this, he shot two action films back-to-back called Indi- uh, Indio, or Indi- is it Indio? Indio, I think. Uh, Indio and Indio 2, and they were, but they were released kind of. There, there was a... The, the first one was released, and then this got released, and then Indigo 2, or Indio 2, Indigo. Indio 2 got released after that. So, what we have is a film called Alien from the Deep, which, at first glance, before I ever saw this movie years ago, and what I saw it on was a really crappy-looking bootleg, I thought, hey, I bet you that this, being 1989, has something to do with both, you know, that whole abyss... Leviathan, Leviathan Deep and Six. Deep Star Six thing, where we had three different underwater, you know, science fiction horror films all made at the same time by different studios. I bet you this is kind of like uh, Juan Simone's Juan, Juan Simone Picard's uh, The Rift from 1990, which was his, you know, low budget Spanish version of trying to do kind of an abyss Deep Star Six kind of thing. I said, I bet this is this is kind of what that is. Well, no, it's not. <laughs> it's actually. Just yet another Aliens ripoff. Not an Alien ripoff. Those were passe now. Now we had, as of 1986, Aliens. With a big S at the end. This is very much a low-budget attempt to do Aliens on a tropical island. And the success-to-failure ratio is not what I wanted it to be. It's never been what I wanted it to be because it's the late 80s and there's not a lot of money flowing. And let's be honest, most of this, most of the uh, cast is best, uh, best, you know, working retail, really. <laughs> <laughs> That's my thought anyway. I mean, I'd say you're pretty close. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's some good modeling jobs for a couple of these people, but I don't think they need to be acting. On the other hand, the pluses in the movie, there are a couple of actors that I'm always pleased to see. Oh, yeah. Charles Napier, who is, I think, a national treasure. In fact, a global treasure. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. You know, you would know Charles Napier from the original <laughs> Star Trek episode, The Way to Eden. Brother. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, brother. My hands and jump for joy. Clean bill of health from Dr. McCoy. <laughs> <laughs> that is easily, it has to be, the first place I ever saw Charles Napier. I think so, too. The first one I remember, and you never forget him once you've seen him, that that jawline. and Oh, God, no. That, that chin could cut glass, man. Mm-hmm. Of course, for a lot of people, he'd be a voice on Squidbillies. But, you know, before that, he had another career, folks, where he was <laughs> actually on screen. I think one one of the most memorable roles for a lot of folks was in the Blues Brothers, True. He, he was the leads, the leader of the country band that they stole the gig from. That's true. He was also uh, Murdoch, the asshole, in Rambo: First Blood Part Two. Right. He was in. Um, was it Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens? Well, he was definitely in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. 
definitely remember him in that Russ Meyer film. And he was in, also for Russ Meyer, he was in The Seven Minutes, which is a very mm-hmm. rare film, very hard to see. And maybe it was Super He was in Super Vixens. Super Vixens. I think that's the one where he stomps a girl to death in a bathtub. Wow, I haven't seen that movie yet. Holy crap, really? I think so, but now don't hold me to this because it's been a long time. But he was in Melvin and Howard. He did tons of television, including things like BJ and the Bear and Star- Starsky and Hutch. Hey, can we do a BJ and the Bear cast? <laughs> no, no, we oh. no, no, no way in hell. He was in a Knight Rider episode, so that should help you out. How about a Lobo cast? <laughs> it would at least it'd be over pretty quick. <laughs> How many episodes did that of that exist? Not enough, or too many. Take your pick. Oh. But nevertheless, Charles Napier is one of those guys who had a very long career. Uh, he had a very distinctive voice, very distinctive physical presence, and he can always be counted on, man. He will sell he sells some of the most bullshit lines in this movie, and trust me, he has sold bullshit lines in really, really bad films his entire career. Mm-hmm. And he always makes it work. I'd buy Whatever he sells. Oh, anytime. I would be afraid to walk into that man's place and him try to sell me a car because I would be a, I would end up owning oh, the I'd fucking car. Oh, I'd buy it. And odds are, if you're listening to this, you know exactly who we're talking about. But if you don't, just Google him. As soon as you see his face, you'll say, oh, yeah, that guy. You'll know him. I mean, come on, man. He even had a bit role in uh, Silence of the Lambs. You've seen Charles Napier, people. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you remember the guy that Hannibal Lecter strung up to look like a butterfly, that's, that's Charles Napier. So... When you've got Charles Napier, honestly, this guy can carry a lot of stuff on his shoulders. He can he carries some, like we say, he carries some crappy dialogue in this film. He carries some entire scenes just by force of personality. Well, he's basically Atlas carrying this movie. <laughs> he does have some help. He has one other actor in the film who, well, this is an Antonio Margariti film. So, of course, who do we have but Alan Collins, mm-hmm. a.k.a. Luciano Pegosi. That's right. Even at this advanced age, wearing a beard yet again. As he, I think he wore a beard in almost every role he was in in the 80s. I think he just adopted wearing a beard sometime in the late 70s or early 80s. And that's all That's all he did for the rest of his career. Well, it kind of suits him, especially in this role. He plays like the, the good-hearted scientist. Yep. And he's uh, got kind of a wizened look. And it, honestly, one of the, um, the best treats for me in doing all of these movies is discovering him as an actor. He was always good, no matter what you put him in. So you've got these two actors, and you know you've got something good going on. The The sad fact of the matter is is that um, Luciano Pagosi actually kind of retired from film, as far as I can tell, not too long after he made this movie. I think this was the last thing he was actually in. The research I did showed one last movie after this, but his scene was cut or yeah, something yeah. like that. So and this was his actual last on-screen role. And that means that... Um, maybe it's a good thing that uh, Antonio Margariti didn't make any more films because he didn't have Alan Collins, a.k.a. Mr. Picozzi, along to, to stick into some random role someplace maybe as a good luck charm. So mm-hmm. maybe that's, you know... Well, that may be why I retired. Time to retire. Like, I, can't, time to retire. I don't want to do any more of these without him. But he, he's great in this. He really is. He's just... His face just... Again, can sell anything that you want. There's something... He can make it work. There, there is something about an actor like Luciano Pagosi who is able to, just by sheer dint of talent and experience, get across a, a range of emotions and actually sell some, some you know, sometimes not particularly well-written dialogue. 
he reminds me of, uh, I just recently saw the, uh, finally just saw the documentary from a few years ago called That Guy, Dick Miller. And once you watch that documentary, you've seen Dick Miller in a blue bajillion films and bit roles. You've seen him for decades. And until you really watch a lot of his work back to back, all these pieces put together, you don't really think about just how good Dick Miller was as as an actor, how easily it, he was able to sell a lot of information and a lot of emotional content to dialogue, even when he's only in one or two scenes in the movie, you are in no doubt whatsoever about what that character is saying, what he means, what his emotional state is, and what he's trying to project. And it's because he was a natural actor. He was extraordinarily good at what he was doing. And that is what both Charles Napier and Luciano Pagosi were. They're good, experienced actors who can communicate very, very well on screen. And it does, I hate to say it, but it really does make the kind of half-assed actors in the, in the other roles look that much worse because these guys are so good at getting across stuff, even when, honestly, the, the, the veteran actors in this movie are saddled with the shittiest parts of the script. The, the, granted, the younger actors, the ones that are less experienced, have the, the more cliched crap, but it's the, the techno babble and the idiotic plot me mechanics that the other actor, that the veteran actors have to get across. And there's a, there's a reason you split that stuff up that way because mm -hmm. some of it is easier to kind of get across and an audience will kind of give you a little bit more leeway when, okay, so she's a flighty woman. I guess that's why she's, that's why the character is so changeable in her attitude toward what the situation is actually going to be. So maybe it's not that the character is, it's not that she's playing an insane character. It's that that's just the emotional set of the person. Whereas imagine some of the technical, weird, nonsensical, but supposedly logical dialogue that uh, Alan Napier is trying to get is is trying to sell to you and only sometimes not succeeding because he's actually good and can manage mm -hmm. it. Try imagine that trying to come out of some of the mouths oh, of some of these oh, younger yeah. actors and it just wouldn't work. It'd be yeah, it'd be hilarious. <laughs> well, yes. But like Pagosi's has a pretty complicated character when you think about it. Yeah. He's the scientist working for the evil corporation, right? But he's a good-hearted guy, but at the same time, he doesn't really think the corporation's doing anything wrong, necessarily. He and, just thinks their methods are bad. Yeah, yeah. but he's not like, oh, I'm going to get the secrets out and shut these guys down. He's a company man. He just thinks that they're proceeding far too quickly on this project, and that's what's making things dangerous. Right. I tell you what, let's, uh, let's explain the plot real quick. Sounds good. Great to base. Great to base. Colonel, can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead, Drake. I got a copy. You got him trapped. The girl's with a snake hunter. A snake hunter? Never gave us any trouble before. Listen, Drake, you're going to be in trouble if you don't find that girl because she's got the tape or at least knows where it is. <laughs> Stop. The movie begins with uh, what is essentially our two main characters. Well, or at least you think they're going to be your two main characters. A couple of Greenpeace activists who have talked a, uh, a, sh a ship owner, or boat owner, I should say, into taking them out to this restricted island, this Pacific volcanic island, that they want to get onto secretly. 
Uh, they have a little trouble when they uh, when they get there because the uh, the uh, there's a controlling interest on the island, a company called Ekim, which is the evil the evil company that uh, runs most of the island. They don't they don't seem to own the entire island, but they own a big chunk of it, and they have a huge facility there. And these two activists are going there because uh, they've been uh, they've been fed information from some mission a missionary and some of the natives on the island that something uh, bad seems to be going on there. In fact, the E in Ekim stands for evil. Uh, that would be my guess. <laughs> Do we ever know what the E actually stands for? It's evil. It, not, not evil. Evil. Evil Kim. Kim. Evil Kim. Evil Kim. <laughs> With Clint Howard. <laughs> Jesus, like... It's like E... It's like the company on uh, Mr. Robot. <laughs> E-Corp. Evil Corp. Uh, so... We have these two guys. Well, we have this guy and this girl show up, and uh, it looks like they're going to have some real trouble getting on there. And then they're able to get on the island, and it's really kind of weird. I don't understand. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. This script has many problems. Well, that was the first problem right off. Is the helicopter is circling over the boat. <clears throat> Excuse me. Turn around. Don't come near this island. Right. They say, okay, we won't. The helicopter leaves, and then the two people get in a raft and just. Paddle to shore. To, the, to shore. And the thing is, <clears throat> if this company is so hell-bent on keeping people off this island, that doesn't make any sense. Mainly because there's a full village and a missionary uh, a missionary there with a full missionary work situation going on, his own building and mm-hmm. everything. And he's and been so, there for a while. That was actually one of the little touches in the movie that I liked. Yeah. Was when we meet the natives... They're very westernized. They've got sneakers and T-shirts. Yeah, they're not they're not idiots and they're not they're not played as fools or foils. They're actually uh, you know they're actually making their living off of the uh, the people who are there working for this company, and they're they're savvy and it's clear that it's a it's a it's a well integrated group of people. But the problem is is clearly if there was a let me let me be clear about this. It should have been this difficult to get onto this island. If there are natives there, and a mission, and a missionary, why not just go there undercover as missionaries? That would eliminate quite a bit of the story. Well, yeah, yeah. Then, so, then, then you're there. Then you have cover, and nobody's looking at you askance from the company side of things mm-hmm. because you're trying to quote unquote sneak onto the island. Well, I see you're using your thinking brain, and that we're going to see as this movie progresses. Mm-hmm is a bit of a problem. You are correct. So, we have them show up, they make contact with the missionary, and then go and start to sneak in looks at the uh, the Ekim facility and trying to find a way to sneak in. Now, all this is well and good. And before we get to the uh, section of the plot where they actually get inside and start looking around, because of course they get inside and they start looking around, they've brought a, a late 80s video camera a beta cam. Is, it, is that what it is? A beta it says cam? beta cam, which... Oh, God, I thought about Even that. by 89, I'm not sure where they got that. It's, oh, wow, really? Yeah, I mean, beta was pretty gone. I guess they were still around, but that wouldn't be your first camera of choice, I wouldn't think. I mean, it's it's massive. I, mean, I think it would have would have probably put the boat in the bottom of the sea. Well, this it's thing a, was shot in the Philippines. Maybe, uh, maybe beta hung on in the Philippines really be. hard. I don't that know. That could be. Well, at any rate, so what we have here... Oh, well, well I forgot. Let me, let me back up because one of the things I wanted to point out was that, once again, you hire Antonio Margariti because he can do things for a price, and that includes miniatures. And so our first instance of miniatures in this film uh, is when we 
look through binoculars at the volcano on the island, and the only thing that would have made this volcano look less like a miniature is if this were a third-generation du- third dupe VHS, where everything looks muddier. But otherwise, watching it on the, the DVD that's out there, it's not you know, it's just a standard dev DVD. Even that makes you go, oh, that's, that's a miniature. You're looking at a miniature thing. Yeah, I, I kept waiting for Peter Brady to spew stuff all over the girls who were there to watch his <laughs> science experiment. And they, they cut away from it just before that happened. Yeah. So there's never any, any opportunity and never, never a chance to do some kind of composite shot where the volcano is composited behind a shot of an actual place because that would cost more money than they clearly were willing to spend. So anytime we get a look at the volcano, it's always from a distance and it's always through uh, either binoculars or a telescope or something like that. So first miniature show up and it's volcano. And it, I, it's it's not believable for a second, but that's okay. I don't need it to be believable. I just need I need it to work within the context of the story, and so we're good. Yeah, I could roll with it at that point. It's, it's okay. Then we get to the facility, which looks a whole hell of a lot like every other giant oil oil refinery facility that we've seen Antonio Margariti blow up <laughs> about a hundred times in films. I, I've seen him blow up variations of this facility. And and this is a real place. I mean, wherever they filmed this is a real place because you can see people walk, running around it. There oh, yeah, it's big it's, and huge. That's one of the things that I was going to talk about was the production value for what had to be about $8. Yeah, exactly. They got a lot. I mean, the set inside looks great. It's clear that they found a place, like I say, in the Philippines, I'm, I'm assuming, where they could go and shoot this stuff. Although some of the stuff was shot somewhere in Italy as well, so I don't know where this location actually was. But it's a real place, and when he starts blowing shit up later on, <laughs> the miniatures match pretty effectively. Mm-hmm. So once again, it's a it's a it's the standard thing that you get with Margariti, who at that time you know was he was heavily using his sons who were helping him with the special effects as well, and you know that had been going on for a very long time actually. So they were they were a good team, and they matched the the real location to the miniatures effectively so when they start blowing things all to hell it looks it looks really effective and once again all the way back to uh when he was blowing up a refinery in uh killer fish that's some effective stuff Mm -hmm. well in killer fish he had more money because he was able to do some composite shots and so you get you know you get like lee majors and karen black you know (laughs) against a against a rear projection of the miniatures being blown all to hell you don't get that in this film you either get the actual shots of the place or the miniatures being blown to hell but still as soon as i saw that refinery place that kind of the facility that's very much a, an industrial refinery with a bunch of you know with a bunch of silos and a oh, bunch yeah, of you knew it was going up yeah. in flames before it was over before it's over explosions explosions it's everywhere. blow up good it's gonna <laughs> blow up real good yes indeed here on farm film report that's right but yeah it looks good and inside you know there's like uh what we find out that the evil Kim is doing is they're taking radioactive waste and dumping it into the volcano. Which seems like a good bad idea. Or a bad good idea. It does. It makes sense, but... It also seems stupid. Yeah. It's kind of... It's not peanut in my chocolate... It's not peanut butter in my chocolate. It's not chocolate in my peanut butter. It's more like radioactive material in lava. I think it's a bad idea. It, something's not going to go well here, but the the volcano that they throw the stuff in inside looks great. That miniature is Oh yeah, yeah, that's really, really good. And like I say, even if you don't know Margariti's film history, if you don't know his techniques, 
you're going to know a lot of this stuff has to be miniatures. Even the ones that look really good that actually fool your eye uh, very effectively, you know oh, there's no way that they, that they were able to actually go to a real live volcano and like wheel a, you know, mm-hmm. and, and wheel a forklift up to it and start dumping, you know, these barrels into it. There's just no way. But it does look effective. It looks less effective the more time we spend with it later in the movie, but that's just part and parcel of a lot of the things that are going on then when we finally get to the alien portion of this film, which, by the way, takes a while. Yeah, it's 50 minutes before the alien comes from the deep. Yes, yes. And let's get let's go ahead and get to this part, because first of all, they have the the beta the beta camera cam. They get in there. They take some footage. They they film some footage of them dumping the stuff into the the lava pit, and they know that this is definitely something they should not be doing. They're like, okay, we got to get this evidence out of here and back to you know back to the states so we can so we can like bring these people down. But of course, they're not able to get out of there quickly enough. They they get caught. Uh, they get separated and then they get caught. But the guy who has the beta cam. Uh, actually takes the tape out and he hides it somewhere there in the facility. Some place where, he, where he'd be able to, to find it again. The woman is able to get away. She escapes and actually gets out of the facility. But the guy gets caught. So the guy gets caught and then is held by the evil corp people. That would be Charles Napier. Uh-huh. And he's questioned. But So we have the, the questioning going on of the hapless Greenpeace guy. And the hapless Greenpeace girl escapes into the woods is being chased, uh, or at least, well, she escapes, but she she doesn't actually escape into the woods. She's very slick. She hides in the helicopter and is hiding in the helicopter when them in the helicopter flying around trying to find her, which is clever right up until you realize, wouldn't they recognize that that helicopter is a little heavier than it needs to be? But hey, that's thinking brain. Thinking brain. That's my thinking brain thinking again. Brain. Back up. Uh, and I have to say that there's this one spectacular stunt when she gets out of the helicopter, dives out of the helicopter into a, uh, a lake. That would be great if that were a real stunt, but it's also completely unbelievable no matter, what, no matter how you do it. It's like the one... Th- it, it, I know this is going to sound strange to say about a movie like this, but it's the one time in the movie when they could have done a real, truly amazing stunt, and it would have been kind of like the highlight. Even if even if you totally disliked this movie, if you went back and you'd say, I mean, that one stunt, though, was really astonishing. But they can't do it, and they don't do it, because the helicopter's too high. There's absolutely no way this person would have survived that fall. But it's beautifully photographed. Mm-hmm. The whole movie's actually pretty nicely photographed. It's, it's, it's shot on, you know, it's shot, a lot of it is shot, almost all of it is shot outdoors now that I think about it. I mean, except the things that are just inside, like offices or a cave, and the cave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In that in the facility, in that cave, and uh, like man, like seventy percent of this movie shot outside. Now that I think about it, I hadn't really hadn't really considered that until now. But it's still that uh, that stunt. I wish they I wish they'd gone for broke on that stunt. Like found somebody that can do something that looked like that stunt to 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 kind of make it semi believable. If they don't, they don't manage it, which is which is sad. So she escapes into the woods. She's still being chased. So uh, you have that standard person being chased through the jungle, gunfire, you know, lots of trees getting killed. <laughs> and she's uh, she's kind of saved by this guy who we've only we, we actually heard a hint of it earlier in the dialogue in the in the village earlier when somebody mentioned uh, the uh, the snake hunter. Uh, so she runs across this guy who is the snake hunter and. 
lo and behold, this character is, looks just like he stepped out of Romancing the Stone. <laughs> he certainly does. Because he looks a lot like uh, Michael Douglas did in Romancing the Stone with the with, with the, the costuming and a shotgun. And it's very much that meet cute moment in the jungle from Romancing the Stone, only done on about ooh, one one trillionth of the budget. <laughs> <laughs> so we have our, our, our we have our first element of the film where you're just going, ah, oh, that's lifted from an earlier film. That's lifted directly from an early '80s hit. So uh-huh. there's that. And uh, we haven't we haven't even gotten to the other ripoff sections. It's like here's that one. We have the Snake Hunter. Only at this point you don't know that's who he is, but you learn pretty quick because he certainly knows the ins and outs of snakes. And there's a let's credit where credits do. There are lots of real snakes in this movie, and no animal cruelty. None of them get killed. And actually, the the snake sequences are pretty darned impressive. Yeah, because they're real snakes and they're really striking. Really striking. And one of the things that the snake hunter does, he shoots a couple of these guys. Right. Which he has to figure, well, that's the end of my snake hunting on this island now that I've killed a few of these guys. Well, but, then, but that's just it. He shot a couple of them, but he's only using buck shots. So the, he didn't oh, kill true. anybody. So he's only like wounded one of these dudes in the arm. And the guy actually says, damn it, it's it, it, it's really hurting, but it's only buck yeah. shot. So, and then they chase him into a snake cave. And, of course, the snake hunter, being a hunter of snakes, knows how to avoid these snakes. But the guys, the military, the evil Kim guys, <laughs> come running in and are immediately beset upon by oh. cobras. Which is really weird. I mean, it, it, does this, being a snake hunter mean that you can mentally command snakes to attack? Remember, he spat tobacco at one of them. Oh, that's right. Okay, now that's an old thing. I remember that from uh, from some westerns actually long ago. That Actually, that that is a deterrent. Uh, that what there's something in I don't know if it's just the smell or whatever it is, but that will actually keep reptiles away from you. The smell of tobacco, especially you know, uh, if you spit it, you know that that smell of tobacco. Mm-hmm. Something about something about that does repel them. So that that makes actually I've heard that for years. I don't I don't know how I don't know if there are any uh, any what are they what are reptilologists uh, herbologists. Uh, Something like that. I think I think that's what they're. I don't know if there are any out there listening to this and can and can tell me that that is a bullshit thing made up by the movies. But it does. I have seen that somewhere somewhere else before. So. Then it's real. So <laughs> it's real it, for the purposes of this film. It's real. It's real. But so at any rate, I, you know, he doesn't really command the snakes. He just sort of knows, like, don't run over there. Yeah. Let's carefully go over this. here. Whereas the evil come guys just come charging in, and it's snakes everywhere, really striking at him. Yeah. They're flying through the air, you know, like just jumping out at them. <laughs> the spring-loaded snakes. It's just like they, they took the cat off the spring and put a snake on it. And boom. And my hats are off to the snake wrangler who was either just off screen, so you couldn't see some guy like throwing a cobra. Or poking at a cobra to get it to do what, mm-hmm. it's, what he wanted to do, yeah. They, they did a great job of keeping him off camera, or they used an invisible chimp. Oh, fucking duck. No, they did not use an invisible chimp because then the invisible chimp would be dead and I would be happy. No, the invisible chimp is smarter than a snake hunter. I don't I don't think that's true. I think he is. He, I he grew up in possible. a lab. He knows science. He did not. He was uh, that grown at the very worst. Okay, look. Enough invisible chimp shit. You've now broken my train of thought and I can't even remember what movie we're doing. To hell with you and your chimp shit. Oh, Imagine how much better this movie would have been if it had been Invisible Chimp from the Abyss. Well, I'm just imagining 
I'm imagining the conversations between Charles Napier and the Invisible <laughs> Chimp. And suddenly, you've almost got me on your side. I think it would have been a pretty good movie. But in all seriousness, the sequence through the cave with the snakes was really good. That was one of yeah, the high points of the movie. That was actually really good. And like I say, that the the uh, types of snakes that are in there, I, like I say, I don't know. They never we never specify exactly where this movie's taking place, other than it's clearly a, a volcanic Pacific island. Mm-hmm. They don't you know they don't really nail it down. Even if they sling out a name, I'm pretty sure it was some kind of fictionalized name. So we're not. You know, we're not uh, treading on some some real place, but the uh, I, would, I do wonder how many of those snakes were actually native to wherever you know to, to even to that climate. Who the hell knows? I don't have any idea. Where, I mean, where do where do cobras come from? I don't know. I know they're like in India, but I don't. know. They may be in other places too. I no idea. I don't know. Why am I even asking this question? We got to talk about something. <laughs> And we're just shocked. Those snakes were murdered in this film. I know. Honestly, as I was watching, I kept waiting for like the butt of a gun to crush a snake skull or something. <laughs> or just, you know, a shotgun blast obliterate one, which is pretty much what I kept yeah. expecting. Yeah. But like later on in the film, we see a, a cobra milked and yeah. it's treated with complete care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and clear fact, that whoever's snake... actually doing that was trained and knows yeah. what they're doing. So, yeah. And the snake hunter even calls that snake his pal. He's a pal. Well, you know, he's a pal now that he can't kill you. Yes. yes. <laughs> Once you've milked him, he's fine. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I truly thought I was going to see a snake get mangled, and I never did. And that was actually quite a nice surprise. <laughs> I wondered if you were disappointed, actually. Well, we did break our streak. This it, was a stre- it was a streak. All the way back to Castle of Blood, for God's sake. Well, Colonel, we got a lot of problems this morning. Gas pressure is 80% over normal. What caused it? I don't know yet. Last night, something came down into the lake. Couldn't even track it on radar. Too fast to get anything on it. What the hell was that? Highly radioactive, for one thing. The instruments have been going crazy since it came down, and it's all coming from the lake. I did send Joe on down there with the diving team. They're waiting for your word. Good. Joe, this is Kovac. You get a copy? Yeah, Colonel. That goddamn flaming thing fell right into the lake. Right now, we've equipped and are sending out a couple of divers and a boat. Well, start the operation, because we'll be right after you with a helicopter. Okay. Maybe it's a meteorite. I wouldn't count on it if I were you. Well, it could be a man-made satellite. They've been known to go out of orbit before, but uh, they usually give a warning when that happens. I don't know if it's worth your while, Kovacs. Committee nosing around under your feet at a time like that. Could be awkward. You know what a bunch of shitheads your military buddies can be. Take a look at this. What the hell do you want? Look at those figures. This is an immense mass of pure energy, but it isn't activating the volcano. It's activating all the waste being melted down. Valve go condition B. Stand by for instructions. Steam pressure is too high. Open release valve 6, 13, 11, and 8. Steam pressure still too high. Open release valves 9, 12, and 17. We've badmouthed the other actors in this film pretty hard. But I will say that the one that I think that comes closest to acquitting himself with any real skill is Daniel Bosch, the guy who plays the Snake Wrangler, uh, with the rather descriptive name of Bob. Uh, <laughs> one of the, that's one of the, the, the odder things to me, and this became progressively worse throughout the 80s, is the Italian genre cinema. There were less and less of, the, less and less of these films getting made, fewer and fewer of them getting made. And so it became easier to spot some of the more bizarre 
tropes that kind of crept into the writing of these things. Because also I think that, honestly, these movies were probably attracting either sloppier writers or less talented writers or less experienced writers. And so these are people who, in general, were people who were writing scripts, or let's be honest, script doctoring things, in such a way just to get the thing done. And they're generally Italians writing characters who are speaking English. And so I think that somewhere there's a master list of the most common English language names, and they just would pick these, you know, pick from that list of names the most generic, bland names in the world are what always got assigned, especially to the men. So lots of Bobs, lots of Johns, mm-hmm. lots of, you know, the most obvious. You know, clear-cut, common names imaginable. Uh, Robert, and over and over and over again. And it doesn't give me the chuckle that I that I always get when Arnold Schwarzenegger turns up and is, is a character with some kind of really American name. That I find amusing as hell. Hello, I am John Tanner. <laughs> no, you're not John Tanner. There's no, no fucking no, way not. you're John Tanner, my friend. You're not John... You're also not Jack whatever. You're not... Not unless that's a pseudonym. I am Jack Tungsten. (laughs) Yes, really. (laughs) I am happy. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Anyway, so this always weirds me out. So we have Bob, the snake wrangler. And it's like, he's a snake wrangler. For fuck's sake, couldn't we come up with a decent name? Couldn't we call him, I don't know, any Liam. How about Liam? Go with Liam. Mm -hmm. At least then he sounds interesting. He's a guy who actually, because he's a handsome man. And he, you're right, he does have sort of a charm about him. Now, the thing is, he only did like four films his entire career, and he just left this crap behind. And from I mean, I, I, what little research I was able to do, he left the film industry, and I think he's now like a pastor somewhere. Huh. He's a minister, I think. Well, maybe this film inspired him to join the missionary field. Um, maybe so. I think I think he is a, a, a minister somewhere in Italy. I mean, and he's an Italian actor, so that makes sense. But at the same time... Maybe the experience was just so bad, he's just like, enough of this crap. <laughs> Could be. Now, we haven't really talked much about our lead girl. Oh, yeah. And she's she's easy on the eyes. You know, yeah. I'll give her that. She's pretty. But an actress, not... She's not much of an actress. Really? She, and she's not really given much... Her character is written in a very inconsistent way. She's... Sometimes she's on task, steel-wheeled... She's 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 got a she's got a job to do and she's there to do it and clearly this character should be kind of written that way because she's going I mean she's traveling to God knows where to try to infiltrate a, a facility and take down a, a giant corporation this character should be someone who's you know got a spine of steel oh yeah when you think about it she went on this island with one other person armed only with a camera right. Going up against what she knows is an evil corporation. And with armed guards, she was Mm -hmm. well aware of the danger she was getting involved in. So that's how you would expect that character to be written. Even when shit starts to go bad and any human being would be frightened, you'd expect her to, you know, be a certain way. But the character flips back and forth between someone who seems competent and capable to someone who seems like the most freaked out emotional weirdo that can just... That, that could exist. It's as if it was two characters. It's as if there were two characters in the script and they just kind of merged them together, and the, all the all the traits were just kind of rammed into one character. Because the character swings back and forth so much in her emotional responses to what is happening around her that it's like, 
were they working off separate scripts at times? Were they changing things as they went? I really don't understand. One of the odder things about this movie, and like I say, when you got to the late 80s, sometimes I think you were working off scripts, and I have nothing to back this up, but I do think that uh, some of the stories I've heard about, some of the scripts that finally got produced in the 80s are scripts that had been floating around for a little while. And so what they did is they would take these scripts that a producer would look at and say yes to and you know throw a certain amount of money at and then kind of start adding things to them that were clearly from recent films, trying to put in elements to either make the producers happy because it was the movie could be sold as kind of a knockoff of this, that, or the other film. And I wonder if that's what turns some of these screenplays into the, the kind of jumbled messes that they sometimes end up being. And I think this movie, if that would be my guess, is because there are moments, and I'll get to those in just a few minutes, where it seems as if parts of the script got left out or they didn't have time to film certain scenes because there are things that they're talking about suddenly, especially the Charles Napier and uh, Luciano Pagosi characters suddenly are talking about, and I have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. I have no clue what's happening. But what's weird is the guy who wrote this script, or at least the guy who gets credit for this script was writing scripts for decades, man. His name was um, Tito Carpo. And this dude has a he has a, a list of screenplay, screenplay and writer credits stretching back to the early 60s. So that's one of the things that makes me think. I mean, the, the, and honestly, some of the screenplays he wrote, I'm very, I'm very pleased with. The man wrote Johnny Hamlet, which is one of my favorite rare spaghetti films. Uh-huh. Uh, he, he wrote Any Gun Can Play, uh, Return of Django, um, Sartana's, Sartana's Here, Trade Your Pistol for a Coffin. Well, some pages got ripped out of this one somewhere, and and at random to boot. Right. He also wrote Seven Murders for Scotland Yard, so people definitely know I have some some love for that particular movie. So it becomes a question of looking at his long list of credits and realizing, yeah, there's some hits and misses here. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. There's things like, well, let's be honest, he wrote the screenplay for Tentacles, and nobody's happy with that movie, so... I saw it in the theater when I was a kid, and I liked it then. Yeah, you liked it then. Well, I haven't watched it since then, but I'll bet it's still good. I'm going to bet it's not. Oh, come on. It's got Oscar winners in it. They only made good movies. Yeah, yeah, it has Oscar winners in it, true. But, I mean, like right before this, he's credited as writing uh, the uh, Lou Ferrigno uh, Sinbad uh, Sinbad of the Seven Seas film which is a clusterfuck of a mess. It's, it's one of those movies that's very clearly was written to be a multi-part thing, and what we're seeing is something that's really chopped down where big chunks of the story have just been thrown out, which what which is what makes me wonder about this screenplay as well, because like I say, there are several moments in this movie where it seems that we're already supposed to have information about something, and we don't have it. Uh-huh. It's just not there. And either it didn't get filmed... It didn't get written, or it got shot and the and the and the film was unusable or got lost or I don't know what the hell happened. But one of the problems that happens here is that when everything starts to go down and let's just uh, let's just dis- dispense with going through the entire plot here because everything that you think is going to happen happens. So <laughs> all the cliches that you're you're fairly sure of are going to happen happen up until minute fifty, and then suddenly. It's that moment in From Dust Till Dawn. Yes. Salma Hayek has just finished her dance, and it turns into a different movie. 
And that's what happens here, except you don't get Salma Hayek. No, and you don't even get to see the instant, the instant, the instant that things change. You get told about it, which is one of the biggest weaknesses. Oh of no, and there's like some theory. blurry underwater, and it's like oh, the underwater footage is miserably bad. It's like what is? I don't. There's something down there. But. So we're told in the dialogue <clears throat> by two like tertiary characters, a couple of soldier guys, security people. We're told, oh, something, you know, something uh, came out of the sky and crashed into the lake, and we're like, really? That would have been cool to see. Yeah, and that turns out to be this alien thing that starts burrowing underground and coming at the facility and the volcano. Of course, it takes time to figure this out because, of course, mayhem erupts because there's this giant claw alien thing burrowing underground and killing people. Which sounds way cooler than it is. Because really what we see is just one long sort of dangly claw. Well, at first we get a little claw so that they can take the little claw and then and, and like do some experiments and on it and figure out what it is. Yeah. So you have, you have veteran character actor Alan Collins, a.k.a. Luciano Pagosi, poking around at some, some lame-ass thing that some craftsman has thrown together that's supposed to be an alien claw and going, hey, it's an alien claw. I think it's pretty yeah. much an alien claw. It looks yeah. like an alien claw. I think you're right. <laughs> I put some butter on it, and it it's okay. <laughs> it doesn't seem to be in the paint anymore. <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh, that would be even worse dialogue. I've tried everything. Electric charges, every chemical... I even think we could bombard it with plutonium. It would have no effect. And you know why? This peculiar kind of claw was created in a high concentration of energy. The sun? No. It comes from much farther away. What kind of lock we talk about? Androids? Robots? Huh? Something much stranger. Biochemical life. Living cells and muscles made of an unknown base metal. Well, Houston, Kovacs, we are in grave danger. Hell with Houston. I just buried that thing under a ton of rock. Almost none of the dialogue surrounding describing this creature is effective. It all sounds like it went through two translations before it hit English. And it all sounds garbled even once it got to English. And they're working to, to sell this stuff, to try to sell the the concept of this alien creature crashing into the ocean. And, and they even, like I said, while watching this movie, there's never any any moment for, like, lots of time goes by and all this mayhem is going on and nobody, and at some point while watching this movie, almost everybody's going, why is this fucking thing here? And then somebody, it's almost as if they hear you. It's at the moment where almost universally an audience member will go, what the fuck is this thing doing here? It's like this movie just turned on a dime and suddenly we're this other movie and somebody in the movie actually does say, I guess it must be here because it's drawn by all the radioactivity we're putting into this volcano. It's like, thank you, because that should have been something that got said a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And even then, it's just a guess, but it's like, well, at least that gives us something to so, go yeah, on. Yeah, at least we got a hook to hang this whole damn <coughs> thing on. But... To a degree, it's almost too much too late because by that time, the movie has already introduced the concept of some kind of, is it a liquid? It's something they're producing at this facility that's highly explosive. And the the idea is that if they have to use this highly explosive stuff that we're already supposed to know about, but we don't. We don't. It just suddenly gets mentioned. You're exactly right. If they have to, they'll use this stuff 
to try to stop this creature because they can't, whatever they do, they, for whatever reason, they feel they can't let this thing get to the volcano and do all the radioactive stuff or it'll be really bad. Once again, vaguely defined bad, I'm trying to figure out why, why don't we just let it go there? <laughs> if it wants the radiation, why don't we just let it have it? Because we keep throwing people in front of it and they keep getting killed. Yeah, just let it go. It's If we stop doing that, it'll just go into the volcano and either die or eat all the radiation, which or is something. also a good thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like maybe what we get like a maybe it grows to kaiju size. Maybe we get that. That would be good. Let's try that. But no. So no. That's one of the biggest script frustrations for me. Is what how? Like I say, clearly there are chunks being left out. Once we get to about the hour mark, it becomes evident as we're in that last half hour of the story where it's like. Pieces of this got ripped out. People, Pieces of this either didn't get filmed or were left out of the editing room. And they're hoping that things are moving so fast you won't notice it. And some of the, if I were seeing this on the big screen, that might work. But I'm not. I'm watching at home and I'm realizing, well, what is that stuff again? Because the first time they mention it, they're mentioning it in a way... Not to not, not to triple underline it because it's clear that by that point in the script you're supposed to already know what this stuff is. Yeah, because the line is like, "Hey, well, if that doesn't work, we'll just use the blow up onium and we'll <laughs> the blow use up. that." And <laughs> the blow so, up. wait, I haven't heard of this blow up onium until now. What is this? What is this blow up onium stuff? And, and it, from context, you understand that it's something they've manufactured there. It's a you know something Ekim has created, and that it's really dangerous, and that apparently they really shouldn't have it, but they do. And it's like, okay, well, god damn it, what the what are you doing to me here? Movie, fix this problem. But it's too late. The movie already exists and it's like 30 years old, so they ain't fixing it. No, no. I'm guessing we're not gonna get a special edition where they go back and <laughs> put in all the alternate footage and <laughs> no. or or CGI out the wires holding up that miniature <laughs> later on. They're not gonna do that either. We'll That's get just... the Richard Donner cut. <laughs> not 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 likely. We're, oh, we're well. not we're not gonna get that. But without uh, going into too much detail, because I don't want to, uh, <laughs> the monster attacks, uh, slaughters a bunch of people, causes a bunch of the facility to blow up in pretty cool miniature form. I have yeah, to say. there's some good stuff, and it burrows around. It looks a lot like Bugs Bunny, kind of like a tremor. Yeah, like a graboid. A graboid from or Bugs Bunny right after he made the left turn at Albuquerque. <laughs> Where you see like the ground coming up, and suddenly that lobster claw pops up and starts chasing people. And, I knew I shouldn't have made that left turn in Hawaii. And then the the claw is like going around corners, and for yeah. a while I was like, "Does that is the is claw the, the thing? Yeah. Is that the thing? Does that have eyes in it? Because it can clearly see. It's looking at people." Well, here's my question: What did you think of the, when we finally get a look at the monster itself in total? What did you think of the design? Well, I'm mixed on it. Okay, I like the design. But what I saw would have been like a really good, like, hey, when we film this thing, it's really going to look good, but here's the prototype. <laughs> it was a good prototype. I like the, uh, trash, the, the trash bag version of the Alien Queen when they were mocking up something to see yeah. how it would work. Yeah, it's along those lines. It is interesting, and, they did, and it's not like any creature you've seen. I mean, it's definitely Giger-esque. Oh, yeah, yeah. But that's it's not... Clear, that's clearly what they were going for. But it's that. an interesting design, and there's some neat stuff going on, but it looks really cheap. Well, it's clear in the latter half of the film <clears> they're <throat> trying to pull off 
some versions of some sequences from Aliens uh-huh. from the James Cameron film that you know to to kind of um, amp things up. I guess would be the best way to put it. And they you know they don't have first of all they don't have the the money or the time to do that. Uh, they make a decent stab at it. There is a mock-up, full-sized version of this thing so that you actually do get shots of real people up next to this thing. And then you get miniature shots from a distance of it as well that are a little bit more effective, But and they do match pretty effectively. But it's ne- you're never really going to be completely convinced by this thing at all. No, I mean, when you see the full-scale version, it's so immobile that the... Giant King Kong in the 76 version. Yeah. It moves like a young Jackie Chan compared to this thing. <laughs> it's just sort of standing there with the one claw sort of flopping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's I, I'm I'm pretty much I'm pretty much in agreement with you. It's an interesting design. Uh given uh, a good deal more money, it could have been a design that really stood out that was I mean, it could have if if they got it more mobile, if they got something that was workable. If they were better able to integrate the the miniature stuff with the li- with the the li- life size version of the thing, they probably could have done something interesting here. It just it doesn't really work. But I will say, as a set piece, this finale is pretty effective, even with the weak, you know, alien critter thing. This whole thing around the vault, the, the volcano pit, and the the radiation barrels and all this it's it actually is. pretty effective. And and then they fight it, you know, with forklifts and bulldozers, which yeah. Did that remind you of the end of Dinosaurus? I'll be honest, no, it did not. Mainly because I've never seen Dinosaurus. Oh, really? No, well, it's, it's it's one of my uh, it's one of my uh, giant monster movie dinosaur movies that I've still yet to see. Well, I think I probably like it more than you will because the first time I saw it, I was about seven. <laughs> so when I was seven, this thing was Dinosaurus was Jurassic Park. It was know. the shit. Oh man, you know, at the end they fight a they fight a Tyrannosaurus Rex with a crane. Cool. And knock it off a cliff, you know, and this of course you see it now and it looks like some kid in his backyard with a Tonka truck. <laughs> but but the ending of this was sort of similar to that, like a big machine fighting a big monster. Yeah, kinda. And, and that was kinda cool. And I kind I kinda like that stuff. If if I had my druthers before he retired, I would love to have seen Antonio Margariti do a film that was like forty percent miniature work where he's dealing with you know you know fake aliens like this fighting maybe like a tyrannosaurus rex or something like that because i think it's something that he could have fun with it wouldn't be stop motion it would probably it would be you know a guy in a suit kind of stuff but he would build the miniature sets in such a way that it would he could do some pretty neat stuff with it but of course that's you know that's you're never going to sell that kind of thing in the '80s, for God's sake. You're yeah. never going to. No one's, no one's going to toss that kind of money around. It's, it's, it's not going to happen until Jurassic Park comes along in '93. So, you know, I just, it just occurred to me. Just imagine how awesome it would have been if he had worked at Toho Studios. Oh yeah. We, oh, it, not we've seen that. some of the most incredible movies ever made. Exactly, and and not just because. <clears throat> well, if he could have steered some projects and have the the resources. That Toho would have been putting mm-hmm. at his disposal, it would have been it would have been a true joy, and it's one of those reasons why <clears throat> I, I consider Green Slime to be such a such a, a weird missed opportunity because they're so you know they're so clearly taking off of those four Gamma uh, Gamma One films and using um, you know they use the some of the sets and some of the uh, the the name and some of the stuff involved in it 
it feels like a fifth Gamma 1 film. Imagine if somehow Margariti had been involved in that. Uh-huh. And that had allowed him to actually, either even if it wasn't with Toho, if it was just with Toei, if he was working with some Japanese studio that was willing to actually throw the amount of money that they threw at something like the Green Slime, but have him at the helm of it, and therefore him, you know, the, the ability he had to coordinate with miniatures and special effects, and at that point in his career, in the 60s, in the late 60s, around 68, when Green Slime got made, man, talk about a change of trajectory for that man's career. I mean, yeah, there are a lot of things that wouldn't have got made, but I wonder what the hell would have gotten made. Oh, yeah. Made, you know, that's a that's one of those great little what-ifs that, you know, it just didn't occur. I mean, there, there are a lot of stories like that. I mean, uh, when they were putting together 2001... Um, the special effects people, and I think Kubrick himself actually contacted Margariti because he had done those science, you know, all those low budget science fiction films, and they wanted they wanted to talk to him, so they talked to him, and they tried to bring him on board to uh, help and coordinate with some of the special some of the special effects stuff, but he was just too busy, so he talked to them, but he did not get involved in something like that, and that's another one of those little tributary tracks down which Margariti's career didn't go because he was busy doing something else at the time. And, uh, you know, God knows what would have happened if he you know, decided, okay, I'll go over and spend a couple of months working on this project uh-huh. with, this, with this crazy American. But eh, we, can make, we can make up all these uh, possible scenarios and talk about them all night long, and maybe someday we will. But for right now, I would like to say, Mr. Hudson, what was your takeaway from Alien from the Deep? I'm assuming you had never seen it before sitting down. I had not. Time. Definitely had not. Um, I wasn't expecting a lot going in. Late 80s, yeah. Yeah. And I got about what I expected. It was honestly kind of a slog at times. It is. But then it's frustrating because at times it would like light up and suddenly it's like, oh, okay, now this is fun. Maybe we're going somewhere. And then it would start to turn into a slog again. So there's some good stuff in there. Uh, Of course, Charles Napier and um, Pagosi are great. And especially... Pagosi, again, I can't say enough. I love how he looks in this thing. He's got that old... The grizzled, bearded Grizzled, guy. bearded yeah. look. And that guy, uh, the, the world needs to discover him. Oh, I he agree. Really do. He's so good. Well, I would love... Of course, he's, he's passed on now. He died in 2008. But I would love for somebody to do some kind of retrospective documentary about the career of Luciano Pagosi. And it, I'm sure there are people still around who worked with him. Uh-huh. And just to be able to talk to him, I don't. I don't know if anybody ever did any kind of in-depth uh, interview with him. I need to hunt out. I mean, there may have been, maybe only an Italian, but I'll bet you somewhere someone at least did some kind of print interview with the man. And I would love to find it and let Google mangle translate it and see see what information there is from him about his own career. But I mean, we did get that hour-long documentary about um, Antonio Margariti called The Outsider. But I, I don't know how much chance we have of seeing a, a documentary about Pagosi. That would be it would be a joy. But I just I don't know if it's gonna, I don't know yeah. if there's any chance of it happening. It would it have to take a company like Arrow or somebody yeah. deciding to do a box set, or maybe do some of the spaghetti westerns and do a feature on him. But maybe. that's and that's a long shot. But <clears throat> it, it's a frustrating movie because there are some things there that could have been a lot better. Yeah, it was always going to be a ripoff. <laughs> yeah, that was that was kind of built in. It was it was surprising when, I, for me, the movie surprised me occasionally when suddenly there'd be a scene that was a ripoff, and I was like, "Oh, that's right, this is a ripoff film." I forgot, mm-hmm. you know. And I don't know, I don't know how I forgot, 
considering that the whole reason the film exists in the first place is to you know rip off bits and pieces of of hit Hollywood films and kind of puzzle them together in a way that will fool people enough to make some money. But. That's because there would be chunks of things that were original are just so bizarre that you've never seen it before. Definitely bizarre, yeah. And I mean, then, and then it would go back into it's like, oh yeah, that's where this is from. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean I'm sure maybe that even the Snake Hunter character is a ripoff from a film, and I just I'm not aware of it. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me. I'm kind of of the same mind <clears throat> as you. I first saw this years ago as a bootleg, and at the time. Uh, I thought, wow, that's you know, it's not it's not particularly good, you know, the budget constraints are obvious, but maybe one day when I can see a, a clearer, better looking print of this, uh, my my opinion of it will grow. Um, it did not. My opinion of it is pretty much the same that it was when I saw it years ago as a bootleg videotape. It's uh, not a good film. It's not a horrible film. Uh, it's definitely the in in the lower third of Antonio Margariti's career, in my opinion. Um, it's it's a light recommend for the curious, as long as you know what you're getting involved in. But it's not one that I would point out for most people. If you're an Italian genre fan, and you know what you're getting into when you're getting into the end of the '80s. If you're aware of what that means, how the quality drop-off has been sharp, 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 you probably get some joy out of it. Because I get some joy out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, because you, you, just like we've been talking about, I'm looking in the corners at the things that I know are good and the things that are standout in them because they're, they'd be standout in anything. Um, and then the, the crappier stuff I'm just kind of you know laughing at or rolling my eyes and moving on. So yeah, it's not a great film. Uh, it is one that I'm 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 glad to have finally gotten a really decent looking print of it. The uh, DVD that came out a few years ago, I think, maybe close to out of print. I'm not really sure. It's not a great DVD. Um, it's still better than <laughs> it's still better than a lot of prints of it that that you could probably get your hands on. But the um, it's a it's a full frame DVD. And I think clearly the film was supposed to be slightly matted because there's at least one scene right at the beginning where you can see uh, some shadow on the, bo- the at the bottom of the frame that you're not supposed to see. Uh, I didn't see anything else in the rest of the movie that would that would be a telltale. So I think they probably were trying to shoot this uh, for VHS release. I think they were probably pretty well aware that this was going to end up being on video before it was on big screen in most countries. So shooting it in that you know that aspect ratio was probably a smart move. Yeah, because at that point the drive-in market was pretty well gone. gone. Yeah, it was gone. So the um, movie isn't great. It's not terrible. But there are about, I'd say, 20 better, maybe 25 better (laughs) Antonio Margariti films. Almost every one of his films that we've seen so far is better. Probably so. Probably so. But if you're a a completist, it's definitely worth seeing. And there's some good stuff like his miniature work in this. Some of it is spectacular. Some of it's wonderful. It's it's worth seeing for the two actors we've already singled out. And the miniature work, when it's effective, is pretty damn cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's not bad. The uh, the score is such a ripoff score. Did you notice how many pieces of the score were just like needle drops from? I mean, I think they stole big chunks of the score from other movies. I really oh, yeah. think. It, yeah. I mean, it's massive ripoff score stuff. I mean, it's like somebody had a record collection where just dropping the needle on it occasionally, just to go, okay, to hell with it, fucking put it here. Yeah, nobody's gonna notice. Nobody's gonna notice. Nobody's gonna care. Let's just go and let's be honest. It's on DVD now. Nobody's nobody's gotten sued, mm-hmm. and this movie's thirty years old. Well, who would you sue at this point? 
well, it, it'd be a blood from a stone kind of situation. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure they could sue the producers. They wouldn't make anything. Yeah. But then again, think about how many people we, we know are involved in this movie are already dead. Maybe everybody who made this movie is at any level of, of actually financing it are, are also dead. So what are you going to do? Sue their, sue their family? See, that's what it is. The people who own the music rights have started picking these people off one by one. <laughs> That's the reason they're dead. That's right. I think it's because they were really old. It's like that Wizard of Oz death curse. Have you thought about it? Everybody in that movie, dead. <laughs> yes. Yes, they are. Get Jesse Ventura on the phone. I think there's a conspiracy They're here. either dead or 150. Yes, I think there's a story true. here. The government doesn't want us to know about this. <laughs> okay, folks. Hang on one second. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll be back in just a second and let you know which Antonio Margariti film we're going to talk about next. The ghosts are moving tonight, restless, hungry. All right, fellas, here's your story. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Wait, Captain. I have found evidence of intelligent beings on this planet. Look to the skies. It's the B-Movie Cookbook. Menus inspired by 15 of your favorite B-movies from the 1950s. With teenage werewolves, blobs, and enough cheese for everyone. When we return to our planet, the High Court may well sentence you to torture. But until then, we've got Ed Wood and Vincent Price. There'll be food and drink and ghosts, and perhaps even a few murders. You're all invited. So impress your friends with dinner and a movie. With the B-Movie Cookbook, we've got you covered. Get your copy today at bmoviecookbook.com. That's bmoviecookbook.com. Let me see that book. I am interested to see what sways your mind so heavily. Sure thing, just visit bmoviecookbook.com. Anybody around here want some coffee? There are a lot of podcasts out there that do science fiction, horror, and fantasy movies, but how many of them are done by somebody who's been watching this shit for half a century? Hi, my name's Terry Frost, and I do the Martian Drive-In Podcast, a podcast where I look at silent films all the way through to movies from the second decade of the 21st century. I look at fantasy, horror, and science fiction, and talk about them, sometimes with a guest, sometimes by myself, but always with an eye to the stuff that maybe has slipped off your radar, if it was ever on your radar. So go to marsdrivein.blogspot.com or type Martian Drive-In Podcast into iTunes and enjoy a bit of decent genre talk. And keep watching the skies. All right, folks. Well, thank you very much for hanging out and listening to us talk about Alien from the Deep. This uh, ongoing string of podcasts about the films of Antonio Margariti is the only thing that keeps Mr. Hudson and I together. Yeah, otherwise I try to stay behind the fence and... Throw rocks at my head? Well, I've got a sign on the fence that says, uh, long-haired Roddy people need not apply. Long, I, I guess I should cut my hair at the very least, or change my name. Yeah, and then it says, uh, any rods trespassing will be shot on sight. That would explain the buckshot that I've gotten mm-hmm. a few, more than a few times stepping across that line. And then you jump up over the fence and say, hey, what gives you the right? <laughs> what gives you the right? To put out a Blu-ray in the wrong aspect ratio. <laughs> you sorry sacks of garbage. <laughs> oh, Lord. And then he says, man, you're some kind of sinner. <laughs> you know, you're a weird individual. Folks, it's been a long time, week. It's been a long week. I can tell it has been. And the heat is not helping. Folks, next time Mr. Mar- Mr. Mar- Margarini is conversed about, 
between the two of us. Uh, it's my time to choose, my turn, my turn. And I'm, I, I've toyed around with, there are like four or five different films that I've been toying around with, and I've called an audible at the very last minute. Um, up on YouTube, there is a pretty darn decent print of a very early Margariti film from 1961. Uh, it was his actual second science fiction movie, Battle of the Worlds. There's a print on YouTube that's actually pretty good. It's not perfect. There's some audio problems in it, in my opinion. But it stars Claude Rains and a bunch of Italians. And Claude Rains was the Invisible Man. Exactly. Do you think... I'm positive that there is no invisible anything in this movie. So oh, there. Okay. I okay. I guess I need to get my expectations in a realistic area. But I think it's finally time that we covered Battle of the Worlds because uh, not just because it's a it's a chance to jump back into the 1960s and cover some science fiction made by Margariti, but if you remember correctly, the documentary made about Margariti's career was called The Outsider because that's basically a description of what he was in the Italian cinema biz. Uh, that phrase actually comes from this movie because the plot is about a runaway asteroid that is dubbed The Outsider by Claude Rains' character because it is coming from into our solar system from outside of it. And so that's what he calls it uh, because he's uh, the clever scientist fella who spots it long before anybody else does. Uh, Claude Rains is great in the film. The The movie is uh, pretty darn interesting. Uh, and I think that, uh, like I say, it's going to be pretty easy to see. There's a print of it up on YouTube. I will put, uh, before we do a before we do our podcast on this, I will create a link on the blog page. I'll put up a, a blog post where the uh, YouTube link will be so that you can watch it right off the blog page or just click over to YouTube and watch it there if you'd like so that everybody who wishes to can follow along on that next one because I know Alien from the Deep was not an easy one to get your hands on to follow along with. The DVD is apparently a little harder to get than you might wish it were if you were a weird sicko like me. It it was a tough one. But I will say that coming up we do have a we do have a wealth of things. We do have uh, you know Warner Archives has just recently put out a Blu-ray of another 60s Margariti film called The Golden Arrow. That's a movie that's a kind of an Arabian Nights story with a Tab Hunter. So we'll be doing that eventually, probably uh, late this year, early next. And uh, I still have the desire to do more of the Gamma 1 films, so we'll probably end up doing Snow Devils eventually. Uh, or Wild Wild Planet, who the heck knows. The, uh, the joys of those films are multitudinous. Also... The uh, Indio films that he made uh, in the late 80s, I'm very curious about just to see how bad an actor Marvelous Marvin Hagler was. So I'm, I'm a weirdo. See, I'm, I'm pretty curious about that because that man had a presence in the ring. In the ring, yes. And but if I that can translate to film, they might have something there. Well, uh, maybe uh, maybe we zig and zag and we go back and we check out the first Indio film. So maybe we do that mm-hmm. after we do Battle of the Worlds. But next time, folks... Keep your ears peeled. The next time Mr. Hudson and I sit down, we will talk about Battle of the Worlds from 1961, starring Claude Rains. So, thanks to everyone for listening. Mr. Hudson, thank you very much for joining me. And thank you, Rod, and I'll apologize to everyone. Rod and I both, I think, have some summer colds, so there was a little extra throat clearing here and there that... Some congestion. Probably can't be edited out, so thank you for your patience and understanding sincerely. Because yeah. we sound, we know we we know what we sound like right now. So mm-hmm. we apologize. Thanks, folks, for listening to us. I am Rod Barnett, and I'm John Hudson, and we will talk to you again very soon. See you soon.
the big 